Hi everyone, welcome to the Inspirited Politics podcast, focused on exploring and inspiring innovation in politics. My name is Sitara Edward and I'm the founder of Inspirited Politics. In this series, we talk about unleashing the potential in politics to create a positive impact on our society for the long term. I speak to guests from inside and outside the political arena, asking them to shine their light on conscious innovation in politics. Okay, welcome everybody. Today I'm talking to Shaila Raghav about climate change and politics. Shaila is a visionary an advocate for the environment and works tirelessly to push the needle to act for a new environmentalism. Shaila is one of the youngest and one of the few minority women at the forefront of the movement in the United States and has been instrumental in influencing international climate policy for over a decade. I am very grateful my cousin-in-law Vanessa was willing to introduce us and I'm so happy she is joining me today. Welcome Shaila. Thank you, Satara. So happy to be here with you. I'm very happy to have you. I normally start with a general question, but actually I got two questions from my eight-year-old niece to ask you when she heard I'll be speaking to you. So is it okay if I start with those first? Absolutely. Okay. Well, first of all, she was just curious to know, how did you get the idea to do what you are doing? And were you like Greta Thunberg before when you were small? Uh, That's a great question. I wouldn't say I was quite um, a a powerful activist as Greta when I was a child, but I think um, I was very concerned about tropical deforestation when I was a kid and I watched this movie called Fern Gully. It's an animated movie where there's kind of a, a fairy and she lives in the forest and it's completely destroyed by loggers who come in and, and, and kind of ravage her, her home and her habitat. And that, that movie just really stuck with me as a child. Mm-hmm. And I um, continuously sought out opportunities to get involved in recycling and other types of environmental activities in my in in my school and ultimately it it, it turned into a career because I there was nothing that concerned me more than the relationship between people and the planet and I I felt like that relationship had been um, destroyed that we have we've we as people have been so disconnected from uh, the planet and where we come from and uh, I, I wanted to dedicate my career to it, even though my parents were not very uh, thrilled at my career choice. They I, I, you know, wanted me to pursue a more conventional career path. They thought I couldn't make a living as an environmentalist. But I think I've seen that this, this field has changed significantly. And now I think there's an enlightened understanding on the part of governments and even businesses. Almost every business has a sustainability division and unit. So I think that, that it doesn't have to be a choice between having a good career and uh, working on behalf of the planet. You really followed your heart in that choice is what I hear as well. So that's so admirable already from a young age. And I think that means I'm going to have to have a movie night um, sometime soon because she's going to want to watch this movie after she hears your answer. <laughs> so um, that gives us a good opportunity as well to sit down with some popcorn uh, one of these days. She was also very curious to know if you know how all the plastic got into the oceans here in Holland 
we call it uh, uh, plastic soup. She has heard a lot about that and she was like, can she tell me how all that plastic got into the oceans? Yeah, so a lot of it will be runoff. So it'll be waste that will get washed away into the sewer or into the ocean from rain or kind of other just uh, floods. But there's also another issue, which is microplastics. So a lot of the uh, clothing that we wear, if it's made of fleece, it's, act it's not made of natural fiber. It's actually made of synthetic fiber that is based as ultimately plastic based. So a fleece. And when you wash these, then some of those microplastics will actually go into the, into the system and actually then be diffused out into the ocean. So there's a mix of kind of waste, but also microplastics from clothing and other materials that we produce um, that have concentrated in key areas. So there's kind of a plastic island in the Pacific Ocean that's almost the size of Texas. And um, it's accompanied by all of these microplastics that are, are pervasive throughout the ocean as well. So your niece is absolutely correct that plastics are a significant issue. And we're on pace for plastics to actually be more abundant in the ocean than fish, which is really concerning um, and very troubling from an environmental perspective and especially for the health of, of our ocean ecosystem. Well, I, we could continue on that topic as well, but um, I, I'm going to bring it back to the base of this conversation today. And I'm sure she's going to have at least 10 more questions for me after she hears your answer to this. But thank you very much also on her behalf. We normally always start with a very different question for all our um, guests. Just imagine that you were able to speak at the UN, at their uh, assembly, in the yearly assembly, uh, where all 193 nations are represented. And the topic would be talking about conscious innovation in politics. You have been invited because of your expertise. What would be the topic you would choose to talk about? So uh, it should probably come as no surprise that I would choose to talk about climate change. But I think the approach that I would take wouldn't be a traditional environmental approach to kind of focus on, you know, melting ice or even on droughts or floods or storms. Uh, I, I think that a lot of the solutions that we are promoting to climate change right now are superficial solutions. You know, uh, don't use a plastic bag or, you know, take public transportation. Those are all very important, but they're not fundamentally going to change the economic model and the development pattern that is continuing to perpetuate an economic system that ultimately was responsible for addressing climate change. So what I would like to talk to with the United Nations is, is thinking about uh, policy that is, is more consistent with long-term outcomes than short-term. I would like to talk about the ways in which we can transform our value system as humanity to be dependent on an economic model that is based on extraction and exploitation from the planet. It's based on consumption of, of resources. I would like to see a transition from that model and, and even a transition beyond sustainability. Because if you think sustainability is about maintaining a particular status or state of being, 
we, we can't maintain our current status because we are on a very, very dangerous trajectory where we're exhausting the planet's natural resources. What would you propose then instead of that um, sustainability tra trajectory? Yes, instead of sustainability, I think we should be moving towards more circular patterns of production. Um, so we're not developing product, not bearing in mind their end of life. We think about more of a regenerative economic pattern that doesn't reward or depend on consumption of resources and products to define growth. So that would be my, and there's many different economic theories. There's a donut economics, mm -hmm. which doesn't look at linear growth, but rather thinks about more in a in a contained system. And so if I had the chance to speak with the United Nations General Assembly, I would focus on a value system that is that that is more compatible with the amount of systemic transformative shifts that are needed, rather than the kind of superficial highlighting of the fact that we're not on track to addressing climate change. I believe we have been talking about this topic for a long time now. And what needs to shift in the political arena for us to achieve this? Yeah, I think that the, um, the pressure and the individual shift in consciousness is needed at, at, at a, a personal level to really be able to reflect and instill that same value system at the institutional level. And I think we're beginning to see that already with a number of individuals who um, and, and people, who, and we're seeing a lot of local responses to climate change that I think are probably the most encouraging sign of, of transformative shifts when you, when you start to see communities coming together, um, urban gardens, uh, local uh, renewable energy initiatives, local cooperatives that are, are organizing around the shared value system that I think ultimately will kind of tr boil or trickle up into the, the pervasive consciousness of society. So I think having individuals talk more ex and, and organize more and, and convey that climate change and these issues of long-term uh, ecosystem resilience are important to them is, is really, I think, going to be the most fundamental driver for change. Yeah, so if we start in the communities, it is going to go upwards and influence uh, the institutional systems in the long term. Yes. Just out of curiosity, how do you keep yourself motivated in such a big and challenging job? Because uh, the results aren't always stimulating, I can imagine. Yes, it's actually, usually it's the opposite. It's very <laughs> discouraging or disappointing outcomes, especially if you are um, aiming for a particular objective or outcome. And, and, and I think I've shared with you, Satara, that I'm a meditator. And I think the only yeah. way I stay sane is through being grounded. I think I've had to work a lot to cultivate compassion for other people and recognizing that oftentimes if I react negatively to someone else's lack of action, it's usually a, a, I'm reacting to something that I'm seeing in others that I don't like about myself. So it's, it's really, I think, a matter of changing my own context within my own mind and my own experience and approach to how other people 
are acting and to be able to cultivate my reactions to their inaction from a place of compassion and love rather than from a place of guilt or fear or anger. And that fundamentally changes the way that I experience the world. And it fundamentally changes the way that other people perceive me. And I think you cannot, you can only have a starting point for a meaningful discussion leading to change if it comes from that place of mutual understanding and compassion. So by meditating, I think I've been able to, uh, been able to cultivate that compassion more clearly for myself and to others, which allows me to have the resilience and allows me to have the uh, determination to continue in what is a very challenging field. Yeah. And it's beautiful what you say, because I, I, I believe and practice the same. And I know from experience that it is effective. It's not always easy, though. So um, I find that very admirable, because especially in your line of work, there is also so much resistance when it comes down to, you know, climate change is not happening, or um, I admire you for being able to take that approach going forward. Yes, there's there's this idea of also uh, non-attachment. So so to not be attached to an outcome. So you act because it's the right thing to do, but you do not have um, your your state of mind and your sense of fulfillment is not attached to any particular result. And and I think that also comes from the being driven by love and compassion. Um, it helps you to be dis- detached from, from that outcome and to not take everything personally, right? Because I think it's very easy to, to, to feel dejected or discouraged if something doesn't happen that you think is the right way. But I think it's a matter of doing your best, do what you think is right in that moment and uh, trust that there will be balance and equilibrium in the world and that you, you do what is right for the the process and for the the ways in which you are able to contribute in that moment and accept whatever the outcome is and and having that that ability to accept is the most important uh, i would say skill that i have uh, developed or cultivated from meditating okay what do you think actually now if you would have a choice within politics if something had to get started what would be the most efficient steps um on the short term that can be taken from the political arena? So I think there are a number of short-term steps that can be taken. Um, you know, it, a lot of uh, what is needed is, is also addressing fundamental issues of environmental justice, because I think there's a lot of evidence that people of color and in particular um, uh, marginalized communities are often more exposed to environmental pollutants and have least access to uh, good food and uh, nutritious food. So I think that there are a lot of kind of social programs or even environmental incentives and subsidies that can be provided to restore that balance between a community's access and, and their ability to have clean air and clean water. So I think the environmental justice components and ensuring that resources that are deployed from governments are, are predominantly directed towards those communities is another measure that, that is quite encouraging. And then, of course, putting incentives for carbon pricing, I think, is the most important policy measure globally that can have the biggest impact in terms of of putting a price on carbon in a way that reflects the true cost of emissions 
which is $100 a ton or more. Right now, the, there's no punitive measure. There's no way that a polluter has to pay for that impact and for that co the consequence of emitting. So by putting carbon pricing and trading in place, it helps us to be able to reduce emissions in a cost-effective way and shift practices in the right direction. You were involved, I believe, in the Paris Agreement, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. What did you learn? Because I, I think it was a wonderful example of a lot of countries being able to come together uh, with, of course, a lot of concessions, but finding agreement on a base. What was fundamental in getting that done, do you think? Which lessons actually can we take out of that for the future? Yeah, I think there were a lot of um, circumstances that led to that enabled the Paris Agreement to be adopted. I think a lot of it was leadership. So you had, you know, a lot of bilateral deals between countries like the United States and China, United States and India that helped infuse trust into the process. The other thing, um, so just just to kind of go back a little bit in terms of how international climate policy has been structured. In the 1990s, a paradigm was established through the Kyoto Protocol that separated countries into developing and developed. The idea was that developed countries like US, Canada, Japan um, have a responsibility to reduce their emissions and must pay developing countries to reduce their emissions simply because historically, Uh, industrialized countries have benefited from the ability to emit and have grown, have experienced rapid economic growth. And now if we expect China, India, South Africa, Brazil to cut their emissions at the expense of their economic development that industrialized countries benefited from, it, it's not fair, right? There's an, an injustice in, in that system. So in the 1990s, they created the Kyoto Protocol that separated and divided countries. But if you fast forward to the 2010s, when the Paris Agreement was starting, uh, or actually the precursor to the Paris Agreement was being negotiated, those discussions fell apart. It was actually, there was a negotiation in Copenhagen that entirely collapsed because the United States and, and industrialized countries felt that with China's rapid growth, that they shouldn't be the only ones responsible they actually felt that developing countries also have a responsibility. And then, of course, the argument on the part of China was, well, don't blame us. We need to grow. We need to feed our people. So those uh, discussions completely collapsed. And so there was really a challenge. And how do you bring these countries together to cultivate trust in the system? Uh, and there were a couple different things that, that I think contributed. The first being that um, the Secretary General of the United Nations at the time, Ban Ki-moon, brought together a bunch of companies and investors. And he basically organized a big climate summit to get commitments from the private sector to show governments that, look, you should show up in Paris. And if you do, all of these companies have your back. They, and in fact, they're demanding a policy signal. So that was one element. The second is some of these uh, bilateral diplomatic measures that help to get countries along. And the third was the fundamentals structure of the Paris Agreement, which is inclusive. So it basically allows every country to set their own target based on their respective circumstances. 
So it's, it's largely a self-determined and you could say voluntary target setting process, which it has strength in that it's very inclusive and everyone feels comfortable joining the agreement. But you can imagine the weakness in that approach because what is the incentive for a country to do more? So that was really the challenge in designing the system. Now that we had this very inclusive uh, agreement, what are the mechanisms to get countries to do more or actually to really do their fair share? And so there's a number of different processes. There's a global stock take, uh, countries have to revise every five years their commitments. And then, of course, there's pressure. So all of the civil society organizations and are, are basically these watchdog organizations are keeping track of countries. They're evaluating them. And there's peer pressure in the system to make sure that that continuously they're doing better. Now, of course, it's not as, as firm as a, a trade law or sanctions, mm -hmm. but um, uh, there, I think, is a good foundational basis for global cooperation on climate change. And that's essentially what led to or allowed for almost universal acceptance of the, of the agreement. Yeah, so that was one of the good benefits that there was kind of universal acceptance on that sense. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You've moved into a different line of work since. Was that a conscious decision? And what's motivated you to, to take another career step in what you're doing now? Yeah, so I spent almost um, you know, uh, a decade working steeped in the international policy discussions. Um, and I think after um, you know, having that, that really incredible experience being part of the Paris Agreement, I, I recognize that now the biggest agents of change or the ways in which we are really going to move or make progress on climate change is through national action and, and as I mentioned earlier, also community action, really getting the enlightened or kind of enhanced acceptance on the part of individuals to address climate change, because that's that's going to be the basis for each country showing up with even with better commitments. So it was almost like recognizing that we now have a framework, but now we need to put all of the pieces together. We need to catalyze action among those people that that may not see the, the uh, immediate interest or benefit in doing so. So now a lot of my work is around organizing act these actors between companies and investors and kind of putting in place those incentives or even communicating more effectively about why they should be investing in climate change solutions. There's so much uh, that you're saying of so much interest, Sharla, that I feel there is, uh, you know, there could be hours of conversation, but we don't have that time um, here as well. There's one thing that I want to know out of your uh, interest that you might be able to help me with. And that is um, to start with, sometimes I just get confused about where can I find the right facts and figures on climate change? And, you know, there is so much going on. Where do I find reliable information? Is there anything you can suggest to guide people who are struggling with that same question? Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest, even I struggle with that question because, you know, you sometimes you end up um, taking a particular action thinking that it's the right one, but you may inadvertently create a different problem. And so you can think about renewable energy or even electric cars. We know that electric cars are low emissions, but, you know, where do you get the batteries from? Where do you and, and what about all of the mining that is needed to 
build those batteries and get all of the lithium that is needed to construct those batteries. So, so I think that just um, even just knowing where to go for that information can be really tricky. And also because a lot of these industries aren't regulated or we don't have um, consistent certification or even if they're certification, they're private certification. So are they endorsed by any kind of international body or is it just someone self-certifying saying that their product is all natural and organic and do you trust that? And what about the plastic that it came in? In any case, I, I know I'm perhaps um, not adequately answering your question, but I think there are some um, good sources for, for information. I mean, there are, you know, FSC, which is the Forest Stewardship Council, um, certifies wood products. I think they're quite solid. There's RSPO, which is the Roundtable for Sustainable Palm Oil that certifies palm oil, which is one of the largest drivers of deforestation. There's um, the o Ocean Stewardship Council that produce guides that can help you to determine what type of fish you should uh, buy or, or what, what how you should regulate your diet. Uh, I, I think that's that's a tough question and one that that requires some careful examination and investigation. Well, at least thank you, because it helps me realize that even for someone with your expertise, it's not um, not easy or it's not evidently what's right or wrong. Uh, and actually, one thing that has come up consequently in all my conversations is that really there's a challenge for us all these days to really do our research and just not to take anything at face value, but you need to dig in and, and do your research to find to find the facts. And there it's not going to be easily presented to you on a like on a silver platter, which I always hope for, but it's not going to be done that way. So, um, yes. so thank you for, for that and at least for naming some resources as well that might be um, helpful. Yeah, and maybe the easiest principle, I mean, I think uh, a lot of it is, is we're trying to buy more sustainable, but I think buying less is just the, the, the no brainer, easiest solution It's just buy less things, try to make do with less, live lighter, uh, spend more time with one another on, on experiences, and I, I spend more time in nature, protect nature give back to nature. These are all things that no matter what we, we know are going to be beneficial for our spirits, for our souls, for one another and for the planet. And if you do have to buy something, then yes, do whatever you can to examine and do, do your due diligence and your research to kind of understand uh, what your bound, personal boundary is as well, because I think for each of us, we have to make our own decisions. You know, I'm vegetarian for environmental reasons that may not work for someone else. So I think it's, or you may live in a different area where you don't have access or you're not able to be vegetarian as easy. So you have to make your own decisions and you have to address or, or identify what's your own level of comfort in, in terms of how you want to live and, and what's available and what your financial resources might look like. So, so I think you're absolutely right. I think it's, it's something that we all need to take personal responsibility and invest the time in, in, in doing our research. And less is more is what I just heard you say as well. So yes. that's a golden tip right there. Less is more, everybody. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> yeah. that definitely works. Um, we've come to an end uh, of this conversation. Time just really flies. But I want to, to finish off with a closing question that I actually also ask everybody. Because I had a few crazy ideas when I started in spirited politics, just visualizing, you know, what would happen if... 
And my crazy idea was really from, you know, what would happen if all political meetings would just start with a moment of stillness so people could align their thoughts with their, uh, with their inner wisdom and with their feelings before getting into things. I've asked every guest on the podcast since, you know, if you had a magic wand and you could achieve something overnight to change in politics, what would be your wildest dream for the field of politics to make it happen? And that would drive the change that you want to see in the world, maybe. Yeah, that's a that's a very good question. I'm just going to take a moment to think. Because... Yeah, take a moment. Contemplate. We've had some uh, interesting answers already. Taking longer to think because I I, I really liked your answer, which is of the as we are of... talking. I just suddenly saw because of what you do, you know that every uh, no matter small body of government or large, they should have a meeting in nature every now and then. Just like take everything outside. I don't know why I've come up with this. <laughs> you, but that's a good one. You, it's just now I thought. How wonderful would it be instead of everybody to be sat in these official Congress buildings that, you know, at least once a year, we take a meeting outside into nature and have decision making done there. But that's now me coming up with that, China. Yeah, definitely not. Not what was the plan. No, that that is beautiful. And I was I'm looking outside because I'm I'm surrounded by trees. And there there's a study where people were looking at the correlation between human health and spending time in nature. And they examined uh, people's tweets inside parks and outside parks. And, and what they found is that there's um, an unselfing phenomenon that happens when people go into nature, which means that they are expressing themselves using less I or me words. It's more feeling connected. You're, you're, it's more of a, a collective experience, one that's not about your ego or your own thoughts. It's more you, you end up kind of connecting more with, with uh, each other and with, with the, uh, where we come from and our true nature when we are outside. So I think that's a, a really beautiful sentiment and something that perhaps could transform politics if there was more respect for and value for nature nature that goes beyond the theoretical practical economic financial but is more experiential yeah okay well we'll take that then and uh, whenever we see something is realized i'll let you know if if i'm able to bring it into practice somewhere i'll also give you a sign on that so um Thank you very, very much for your time today with me. Uh, I really enjoyed our conversation. So thank you for uh, having this conversation with us. For our listeners as well, if you want any more information about Sila, you can go to our website as well, inspiritedpolitics.com. And thank you all. Thank you, Satara.